Okay. So, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I've been struck over the summer by several things I've heard in the last few weeks which keep leading me back to Hebrews chapter 12. Kind of feels, maybe this is just me, but it feels like we can't escape this passage. Since the beginning of May, let me give you a rundown. Since the beginning of May, I've preached from Hebrews chapter 12 four times. So maybe it's my fault. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 four times. Uh, but also, since the last time I preached on Hebrews 12, if you were at New Day, lots of us went to, or lots of the young people and uh, the team with them went to uh, New Day. And what happens first night? Up gets this guy, Joe McNamara from London and preaches on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 or 4. A devoted, if we were at devoted again, uh, if you don't know what devoted is, we were at, uh, off camping the other weekend, uh, another great time of gathering together with other churches that we're connected with. And Andrew and Rachel Wilson got up on the Sunday evening, and where did they preach from? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 can't escape from these verses. I just have a sense that God's... There's other things that I'm going to say that have also drawn me back here, but there's a sense that God wants us to not quickly move on from this. He wants us to, to stay here a bit longer. There's a big picture for us to see. We see the truth of these words. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance. 
the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as sons. We can see, or we could, if we were not careful, we could just get drawn into seeing a bit of a, a, bit of a textbook for what to do when we face trouble. Ah, here we are. These are the things I must do. It's feeling a bit hard at the moment. I'll come back to Hebrews 12. What do I need to do? I need to endure. I need to throw off things. I need, to, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. If we don't catch hold of what the author is truly saying, what he's really getting hold of, there is a massive, massively bigger picture to this. That we are his. That our lives are not our own. That we are his children, as the author so wonderfully shows us. God disciplines the ones he loves. He, he disciplines, he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. We're his children. And ultimately, it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about this one, this Jesus, who Anna was so wonderfully talking about. His name is the one that's above all names. So I've preached it four times. I've heard Joe McNamara preach it. I've heard Andrew and Rachel Wilson preach it. Other things that have pointed me in this direction, also at New Day, I had the, uh, the opportunity to be at a seminar which was targeted at the youth leaders at New Day that Terry Virgo was doing. And he pulled out a picture that might be familiar to some of, of being shaped into an arrow, drawing on the, the, the verses in Isaiah 49 where uh, God's speaking to the servant of the Lord and saying, I've, I've shaped you, I've pol- made you into a polished arrow and I've stored you in my quiver ready to fire. And Terry was making this point of, it's what God does with us. He molds us and shapes us. He's, he takes us. He doesn't, he doesn't as it were, if, if we were this branch, he doesn't come and we're, we're a branch in a tree. This is our life. God doesn't come and say, okay, well, you've got this nice life as a branch in a tree. You want, want me to save you? I'll come and I'll sit with you in the tree. I'll be this little bird who comes and just talks to you and tells you important things. And you can go on living as this branch in a tree. He doesn't do that. God says, no, no, what this is really all about is I've, I've come, I've saved you out of your old life. I've taken you. I've changed everything. I've cut you out from that old way of living. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now I've, I've cut you out and brought you into something completely new. Now, Terry shared how... Well, imagine that as this picture of this arrow being formed. I've taken this branch. I've taken it out of the, the rubbish and everything else. Or maybe stuff that you thought was quite good of being part of this tree. But I've taken you and I'm molding you and I'm shaping you and I'm making you into something that is for purpose and is wonderful. Joe McNamara, when he preached, he started by talking about people who do park run and saying we were all mad. But his point was, as the writer to the Hebrews is talking about, let's run the race. But running a long distance, and let's be real, parkrun isn't really a long distance. People who really run a long distance, this is hard work. This is a big effort. It's painful. It's disciplined. It's, it, this is hard. Running a marathon, I don't, you can't even imagine what it's like. 
It's hard work. And Terry was talking about this branch being fashioned into an arrow. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Look what God is doing. But there's pain involved. There's, this isn't easy. This isn't like... There's material being chopped away. There's processes being done on this wood. That's, you can imagine this isn't just plain sailing and easy. It's a, it's a painful thing. But it's for purpose. This is what God is doing with us. As Andrew and Rachel shared at Devoted, they, would, they were talking about, they talked a lot about their story and their, their life of bringing up their kids and, and dealing with uh, the situation that they're in. But talking about it like this, that this is a story that we're in the middle of. And actually, if you picked up a, a novel and just flipped open to the middle page and just started reading, you'd think, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I can't understand. But why? Because you're in the middle of the story. You can't see the end. You don't know what's come before. You don't really get the full grasp of what's going on. And particularly, you can't see the end. You can't see what's coming next. You can't see what this is leading to. But the truth that God knows it all. God's got it all in hand. God knows the story. He's got a much better perspective. He understands and he is in control. And almost the point, of course, we don't understand. Of course we don't understand it. Because we, don't, we need to see and lift our eyes to see there is a much bigger perspective. So all these things kind of started pulling together. And, and also, in fact, Andrew, I think Andrew shared, Andrew Wilson shared this as part of that, but also a, a, a picture which Simon Holly had shared at New Day. So Andrew Wilson shared this picture that Simon Holly shared. So I'm going to share this picture that Andrew Wilson shared that Simon Holly shared. It's about 20th hand by now. Um, but he gave that picture of What's life like? Do we anticipate that life is like being on a cruise ship? Do we anticipate that that's what it is? Now we're saved and we're on this journey to heaven. We're on this cruise ship that will carry us there. We've got our ticket and we're on the way. But of course, if we're on a cruise ship and a bomb lands in the swimming pool and it kind of, <clears throat> we end up spilling our drink on our shirt, we get a bit miffed understandably. We'll be up in arms. We're up to the captain. What's going on? Where have you taken us? This dangerous area with bombs flying around. What's going on? And the swimming pool's wrecked now. What are we going to do? If our mentality is that, we've paid for this. We're on this journey. We've, we expected a, a cruise of comfort and luxury. When the bombs start falling, you think, what's going on? Where it's actually... If you're understanding, no, really, we're on a battleship. God's called us on a mission. He's brought us together as an army, a band of brothers, a, a family on a mission. When the, when the bomb lands in the swimming pool, you can't think, well, it was pretty impressive that we had a swimming pool in the first place, rather than being miffed about where the captain is taking you. You understand, it's not easy, it's hard. Bombs start going off. This isn't easy, 
but our mentality is different. We understand, no, this is what God is calling us on a mission, on an adventure, on a journey with him. Rather than being put out, what's happened to my comfort? As Jesus himself said in his own words in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has called us to follow him. Jesus has called us to follow him, the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Calls us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we won't lose heart, so that we'll understand. So all these things are mounting up. I believe God's speaking to us. Not just about specific hardship we might face or about specific times when it feels like everything's going wrong, but the understanding of this is who we are. We've been brought into something. We are his. Our lives are not our own. Yes, we see the specifics of running the race. We see the need for perseverance. We, need, we see we're called to endure hardship as discipline. This race is not always easy and we shouldn't be surprised. But this isn't a focused in, head drawn down to the detail of, okay, what, what I need to do when things are hard is I need to endure. Okay, well, I'll tick that off and I'll understand for, for later. But it's a lifting of our eyes to see Look at this. Look at what God has called us into. Microphones won't always stay on your ear. All sorts of things can happen. But we are God's children with a race to run and a saviour to fix our eyes on. I believe this is what the writer is guessing at. In the background, in, in, in the background to all of this, the, you might think, well, he's not talking about being, being his people and all these different things, but if we look at the context and the, the understand what has the writer been building up to, I believe we see this is what he's talking about. He's not just giving us some kind of tick box list of what to do if things get hard. He's, he's showing us we're the children of God. We're the people of God. And we are his. He's been building up this picture. We see even here, we see the, the things. Run the race, persevere, endure hardship. But also, what's he talking about? He's talking about fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the one. Fix our eyes on him who has called us and brought us in. He's talking about a God who calls us sons. That's why he's disciplining us. Because we're his children. But of course, what therefore is our expectation. We're going we're gonna, to, in a moment, look actually through the whole letter. Well, different little bits. Don't worry. And see how he's built up this picture. This is what God has called us into. But again, going back to that illustration, if, if we see life and if we see the journey of following Jesus as a cruise ship, we're expecting comfort. We're expecting safety. Any bump in the ride is a shock, an imposition, a, an imposter. How dare it break into my life? You can so easily get there. You can so easily think this. Well, Christians should have an easy life. God will protect us from everything. 
now Jesus is in my life, everything will always work out. Get into this mindset. I've invited him into my life. And now he can help me just make my life a little bit better than it ever was. No. No, it's not the truth. Going back to that picture that Terry Virgo was sharing. We're cut out of the tree. Jesus doesn't come into our nice place where we think we're safe. He says, no. Do you know what? Actually, you're dead in your sins. Now I'm giving you real life. Come to me. Come and follow me. He doesn't come in to our life such as it is as some kind of extra add-on. No. He's doing something so much bigger, so much better, so much greater. He's taken us from where we were. We live in him. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's actually so much greater than any sense of, oh, well, we had a nice life and now Jesus has come to help. No, well, actually, that's mundane and, and actually ultimately rubbish compared to this. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It's painful sometimes. It's tough. It's so easy to drift into, oh, I'm really struggling here because surely God would have changed this by now. Surely God wouldn't have done it like this. Surely God wouldn't lead me this way. Surely a Christian shouldn't have to face things like this or suffer like this. And in saying that, I'm not, I'm not talking about this wonderful, actually legitimate sense of lament and of wrestling and of struggling that we see so often in the Psalms where David and others are saying, God, how long? Why? What, what, what is going on here? But ultimately, what are they saying? But God, I trust you. But God, you're the one who's in control. I don't understand it. I can't work it out, but God, I trust you. Now, I'm not talking about that. That's, that's so helpful and valuable at times. But I mean, some kind of sense that fundamentally this shouldn't happen to me because we've misunderstood somehow completely that actually I think this is all about God being in my life and making it better. Like some kind of fairy godfather who just comes and gives us everything we want. Thinking we're on a cruise ship with our ticket to heaven. When God has said, no, I've bought you with a price. I've come to give you new life. I've come to do something so much bigger, so much greater than that. And we see it through Hebrews. We see what the writer is saying. Look what you've been brought into. That's the, we need to see this big context as he gets to chapter 12. So, how does he begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. He goes on to say the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He begins, Jesus has come. Jesus has come and that changes everything. And Jesus, it's all about him. 
He's the one who is above everything. As he goes on to say in the coming chapters after that, he's better than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's the one who is God himself. He is incredible, amazing, awesome. It's all about Jesus. And we see as he goes on, Jesus who has done this incredible thing, this wonderful thing. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he's talked about the fact that actually we do see that everything doesn't seem to have worked out yet. It doesn't, we don't always see everything in submission. We don't see everything working out exactly how we would like it to. But chapter 2 verse 9, we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's all about Jesus, and look what he has done. Look what he has done, and look where he is now seated. We see this wonderful picture of what God has done, and it's not just, oh, God's suddenly broken in Jesus, and that's the only thing he's done. No, this is what God has been doing across the generations, across the centuries. He's been calling a people to himself. He's been building a people. He's been doing, carrying out his kingdom purposes. The writer goes on. He, talks, he goes back to Moses, and he talks about uh, the, the people of God in the wilderness. He goes on. To start, go right back to talking about Abraham. And he says, look, this is what God has been at work doing right from back then. Right from the beginning of the world. But, but let's look at Abraham. Let's go there and see. What does God do? He calls out Abraham and he says, I'm calling you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this promise. And through you, I'm going to call a people to me through your descendants, through one particular descendant. I'm going to do, I'm going to carry out my kingdom plans and purposes. He gives Abraham a promise. And what does the writer to the Hebrews draw our attention to? In chapter 6 and verse 16, he says about God's promise, look how certain this promise is. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to call a people. I'm going to do all of these things. And what does he do? Chapter 6, verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. (laughs) But because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Why did God do this? Well, he did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. What's he saying? God, there was no one greater for God to swear by. In fact, God, it's impossible for God to lie. So he didn't need to make an oath. But he says, actually, so you understand, this is utterly certain. This promise, my plans and purposes are never going to not come about. They're always going to happen. It's always going to be exactly as I have said it's going to be. Look, I'm making an oath. I'm swearing an oath. Look, this is utterly unchangeable. God's promise that he made all those years ago is never going to fail. It's always going to happen. And ultimately, in Jesus, 
promise, you see fulfillment of the promise by Abraham's seed. God's drawing men to himself. God's gathering a people that will outnumber the stars in the sky. All these things that he said to Abraham, that's the promise that is still going on. That's the plans and purposes of God that we've been called into, that we've been drawn into. God's got this massive plan and it's still being worked out. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's utterly secure. And, and what? It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God made a promise to Abraham and as Jesus came, we see this promise being fulfilled. We see Jesus has gone through the curtain. He's made a way. He's entered on our behalf and he is high priest forever you get this big picture God made a promise God was at work throughout the Old Testament God sent Jesus Jesus has come and we see look this promise is completely secure it's it's coming about look it's happening God is doing what he said he would do all those years before now Jesus is high priest forever We see this is what Jesus has brought us into. Jesus greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the law. As the writer goes on to say, the law is a, was a shadow of what was coming. No longer are we coming by the law to try and come before God, to try and make ourselves acceptable, to try and be Acceptable to God, but Jesus has done it once and for all. Jesus has died to bring us into new covenant relationship. He died, he rose again, he's exalted on high, so that we can be brought into something incredible. New covenant relationship with God through Christ. What does it say in chapter 9 and verse 11? When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of his, this creation. He didn't enter by the means of, blood, of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. See what the writer's doing. It's building up a picture Jesus is the one. Jesus is so much greater. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. Where the law tried to and sort of showed a way that it sort of is supposed to work, but it can never do it properly. Look, Jesus has come and he's done it. He's made a way that we can be brought back into relationship with God through him. This is it. This is God's purpose throughout Let's see this bigger picture. Jesus has come. Jesus is calling us to the Father. Jesus has come so that us, our dead lives could be made new and alive in him. So let's wonder at what Jesus has done for us, but not, oh, Jesus has come into my life to make it better. Jesus has come into my life as some kind of add-on that will surely improve things. But look, no, Jesus has come to bring us into something. We're dead to our old lives. It's not about us, it's about him. 
See, he's not just come into our life to kind of help. But he's bought us with a price. He's redeemed us and saved us, cut us out from where we were and grafted us in to him. So that now we have new life. A new life running after our saviour, running after Jesus. See, this is what the writer's getting at. This is what we've been brought into. This is what he's saying. Come, look, see it, you Hebrews. Understand, this is what it means that Jesus has come. This is what it means. This is what God's been doing. This is his plan. Do you see you've been brought into something amazing? So therefore, that's where he's getting to as he comes towards the end of chapter 10. And in verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened us up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the wonderful truth that has come about through Jesus. We have confidence. We have full assurance in faith because of what he has done. So we can approach the throne of grace. We can come before God. We've been brought in to his kingdom, his family, his great plan. He's not giving us a list of tick box list of things that would be good to do. He's showing us the wonderful story of God. He's showing us the wonderful things that God has done. Even as we look through chapter 11, all those different characters through the Old Testament. Yes, look how they, what they did by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He's not just giving us a tick box list of examples. Well, let's do like Abraham did. Let's do like Moses did. No, he's showing us, look at the great story of God. And look at when these different men and women throughout time got hold of the fact I can trust God. I can believe him and what he has done and what he said he's going to do. Look what God does. Look at his faithfulness. Look at the, the great picture that he is painting. And so this is how he gets to chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that entangles in one sense, he's saying, therefore, since we see this great picture that God is painting, since we see, what do these guys bear witness to? What do these men and women bear witness to? But to the faithfulness and wonder of God and what he has done. What it means to believe him. Therefore, because of all that, let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us run the race with perseverance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to see this big picture big picture that Jesus hasn't just come to make your life a bit better and a bit easier. He's not come to give us a ticket on a cruise ship to heaven. He's not come to join us in the tree. But he's called us out of where we were, into his kingdom, his family, his glorious plan. I'm reminded at 9.30 during the worship time of these wonderful verses in Ephesians 2. This is the truth of it. God doesn't come to live in the, our tree. 
Because what's the reality? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. This is the wonderful truth. This is the wonderful truth. We have been brought into life with him. Life in him. To new life. An adventure with the king of kings. A glorious life he's called us into. But this is the truth. He's fashioning us. As the author goes on to say, he endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as children. What does he say towards the end? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, what is it doing? It's producing a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. God's at work for purpose in us. This is the new life with him. Following him, going after him, running with him. An adventure it's not a cruise ship, but it, it's a battleship. You see, this is our identity. We're in Christ, and he is, he's on a mission. He's on an adventure. Then this will be the life we're expecting. Yes, we will face trouble. Yes, we will face hardship, but we're not put off. We're not discouraged because we understand what is this all about? We're his. We're his. We're his children. God is a father who loves us and he's treating us as his sons. We understand we've been called out of our old life and into new life with him. So therefore we do come to fix our eyes on him. The pioneer and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This is who we're following a wonderful saviour. You see, we can read these verses in Hebrews 12 and we can get into this narrow, blinkered way of thinking. I'll just come back here when I'm facing hardship and I might find something that I can do. Ah, okay, I need to endure. Right. I need to endure. That's what I need to do. Now, of course, this is a great place to come back when we're facing all sorts of things, but actually we need to see it's bigger than that. It's not, it's not a tick list of this is the right thing to do. No, this is, what, this is what it's about. We can endure because we know who God is and we know who we are in him and we know that he is treating us as children, that he loves us and he's for us and our lives are his. We can read it in a narrow and blinkered way. This will help me in the limited and unusual times when hardship hits. But hopefully that will very rarely happen and it will be over quickly. Or we can see this is who we are. We're the children of God. God treats us as his sons. We've been called out of darkness into the light. We're following Jesus, our saviour, our brother, our Lord, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Who said that anyone who comes after me must take up his cross and follow. He's called us to a life of faith. But the truth is, it's wonderful. You see, there's this tension here. It's like we're talking about stuff that's painful and hard. It's, it's not a life of ease and comfort and, and, and we just kind of drift through and it's as if we're on a cruise ship and it's lovely. And if any silly little thing happens, we think, how dare it? No, there's pain and there's, it's tough and it's hard, but it is glorious. Because this is God leading us on. And we know how the journey ends. We know how the story ends. Jesus is coming back. Jesus has called us to follow him and he is coming back. And one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. One day everything will be subject to him. Everything will be as it was supposed to be. We know the end of the story. But this is what a life of faith is. Knowing that we are his. Putting aside any idea or any kind of remaining sense that we can hold on to. That actually it's Jesus who comes into my ordered and controlled life and just kind of makes it a bit better. No, we are his. Totally. Completely. And we know that much will come up that won't make sense at the time. It will be hard and it will be painful, but no, God is at work for our good. God is producing a harvest of righteousness and peace. God is fashioning arrows. To go back to that picture, he's not just leaving us as gnarly, pretty useless branches. If they stay as they are. No, he's doing a great work in us. And through us. But we come to him and we say, Lord, I know I am yours. My life is in your hands. Whatever I face, I know I can trust you in all of it and through all of it. And I know that it is more than worth it. Because you are worth it, Lord. We are his. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, picks up a similar theme. And he says this in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul knew what it was to face hard times, to face troubles. Yet incredibly, he can refer to them as light and momentary. They might feel heavy and long-lasting, But in comparison to the eternal glory, the joy that is set before us, the wonder that God is leading us towards, 
light and momentary. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who has gone before us, the one who is the author and perfecter of faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. Let's end there. I'm going to pray.